0: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Thursday the 14th of December. It's Fed Day, the final one of the year, and we have the latest news and analysis from the FOMC meeting. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And in today's business and finance headlines, the US Federal Reserve held the benchmark overnight borrowing rate steady at a 22-year high in the five and a quarter at a 5.5% range and forecast three rate cuts in 2024. Projections released after the bank's meeting showed they expect its median key interest rate to stand at 4.6% next year, around 75 basis points lower than the current rate. The Fed's quarterly dot plots, revealing the interest rate forecast of committee members, show no members now expecting further rate rises. A new deal has been agreed at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai after days of negotiations. For the first time, the deal calls on all countries to move away from using fossil fuels, but not to phase them out, something many governments wanted. The latest proposal, published by the summit's hosts, the UAE, earlier on Wednesday called for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. The Bank of Japan's quarterly tankan survey showed that sentiment among large Japanese manufacturers improved more than expected in the fourth quarter, while sentiment among big non-manufacturers improved for the seventh quarter in a row. The Bank of Japan's index for big manufacturers' sentiment climbed to 12 in Q4 from 9 in Q3, pointing to the highest prints since the first quarter of 2022, an exceeding market consensus of 10. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. And with a view from Taiwan, is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Please keep your questions and comments coming. I do read all of them. You can post them on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, or on my Facebook page, Peter Lewis Money Talk. And on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. <laughs> On Wall Street Wednesday, US stocks surged after the Fed forecast three interest rate cuts in 2024. The Dow closed at a record high, jumping more than 500 points to close above 37,000 for the first time ever. The 30-stock Dow added 512 points, or 1.4%, to end the session at 37,090. That was virtually the high point of the day. The S&P 500 jumped 1.4% to finish the session at 4,707. With utilities and real estate shares leading the way, all 11 S&P sectors closed in positive territory. The Nasdaq Composite climbed 1.4% to 14,734. U.S. Treasuries staged a historic rally and yields dropped as comments from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell helped extend the rally that began after the U.S. Central Bank published a more dovish outlook than investors had anticipated. The yield on the policy-sensitive two-year note ended the session down 27 basis points at a six-month low of 4.46%. That ranked as its biggest daily drop since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank in March. And at its intraday low, the two-year yield was down 30 basis points, which would have ranked as its 10th largest one-day move this century. The 10-year yield hit its lowest since August, hovering just above 4% at 4.03%, down 18 basis points on the day. The US dollar index fell 0.8% to below 103 on Wednesday, the lowest level in over a week. The yen was the biggest beneficiary of the US dollar weakness, surging 1.7% to 143 yen against the dollar. The euro was 0.8% stronger at 1.08 and three quarters. The offshore yuan slipped towards 7.20 OMB per dollar in Asian trading, hovering close to its lowest levels in over three weeks as a policy meeting of top Chinese officials, where they set economic targets for next year, provided little boost to the market. However, after the Fed decision, it surged 0.8% to 7.13.5 OMB per dollar. Gold sold over $40, back above $2,000, ended the session 2.3% firmer at $2,025 an ounce. Oil prices recovered from falls in Asian trading Wednesday that took them to six-month lows. Brent crude futures for February rose 1.4% to settle at $74.26 a barrel. And Bitcoin jumped 3.8% to $42,800. Year-to-date, Bitcoin has gained over 158%. Hong Kong stocks and mainland China A shares fell as investors expressed disappointments with the outcome of this year's Economic Work Conference. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng dropped 146 points or 0.9% to end at 16,229 on Wednesday. The index hit its lowest level in over 13 months. The Shanghai Composite fell 1.2% to close at 2,969 and raising gains from earlier in the week. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 135 points higher. That's around 0.8% starting the day at about 13,363. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com.
1: Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter
0: Lewis's Money Talk.
2: Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
0: On our Fed Day. Pleased to welcome our panel of guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us, John Schofield, who's Managing Director of Tempus Investment. Good morning, John.
2: Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter.
0: So the U.S. Federal Reserve, as you heard, there held the benchmark overnight borrowing rate steady at a 20 twenty-two-year high in the five and a quarter to five and a half percent range, and they forecast three rate cuts in 2024. They expect the median key interest rate to stand at 4.6 percent next year, about 75 basis points lower than the current rate. And the dot plots show that not a single member on the FOMC now expects further rate rises. In coming to its decision, the Fed noted in a statement after the meeting that the growth of economic activity has slowed from its strong pace in the third quarter and inflation has eased over the past year but remains elevated. And in a press conference after the announcement, Federal Reserve Chair, uh, Chairman Jerome Powell said that the Fed is now seeing progress on inflation across the three main core areas, And he said the Fed's willing to cut rates, even if the US economy doesn't dip into a recession in 2024. Mr Powell said it could just be a sign that the economy is normalising and doesn't need tight policy. And he said the question of when it will become appropriate to begin dialing back the amount of policy restraint in place is clearly a topic of discussion out in the world and also of discussion for us at our meeting today. Um, So, Andrew, this is quite a big turnaround, isn't it, for the Fed?
3: Yeah, actually, pretty massive. And uh, reading uh, the details it seems to be a little bit contradictory. They seem to be wanting to have it both ways. First, suddenly we're going to have three cuts uh, out of uh, or out of nothing. Then Powell says uh, we're not going to see inflation at two percent till the year twenty six. Read my lips. Okay. Well, hang on a minute. That was their target before they will do anything uh, like cutting interest rates. Okay, and then. Uh, the rest of it is a little bit sort of um and ah. The economy is doing uh, much better without a great deal of inflation, and therefore, therefore, you know it. Oh God, it 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 looks vague, and I find it very unsatisfactory in terms of uh, of explaining something. You know, out of nothing, we have three cuts in interest rates, mm. and of course, he says there's nothing to stop us, of course, of increasing interest rates should this be necessary. Well, thanks very much. Will it rain tomorrow? It (laughs) might rain, it might not rain, it might be very dry. Okay, so 100% accurate forecast.
0: It's it's a bit odd, isn't it? Because at the last Fed meeting, Jerome Powell was saying almost the complete opposite, trying to dampen down expectations of of rate cuts. Now, not much has changed between last meeting and this meeting, but suddenly now all that's gone out of the window.
3: It's a a helpless task. I don't feel... uh, particularly sorry for them because they paid they get paid to do it. But um it's a little bit humiliating for all of us grown ups trying to guess what the Fed is going to do. And then the Fed does something that uh, none of us is going to be surprised. But equally we are we are we are a little bit uh,
2: aghast. It's it sounds not serious.
0: Mm. John, are you surprised? Are you aghast? What what do you think?
2: Um yeah, I'm slightly surprised at how um yeah, how dovish uh he seems to be talking now. Um I mean the main thing is the the uh to get inflation down, um you need to have, you know, real real interest rates of at least 1% above the the current rate of inflation. So I suppose on that basis you could argue that um starting to starting to ease a little bit um during the course of next year provided inflation stays you know below three percent but it's Mm -hmm. also true that the you know the last mile is the their core inflation rate four percent um they still they need to halve that Mm -hmm. you know it gets as as as, as, you know as inflation falls towards the target the rate of progress gets slows down and it gets harder and harder to squeeze that last little bit out so um you know, in the past, people have raised the question of whether whether the two percent target really is the right target. Um, so I don't know whether they're starting to, you know, and as long as uh, as long as it's falling even very slightly, um, and and is uh, below three three percent, then then they'll be happy with that.
0: Mm. What well, what I don't really get out of this is is the Fed saying that they think. Inflation is going to get down to target at two percent, and therefore that's going to give them the leeway to cut three times next week. Or are they yeah. saying it doesn't matter, even if it doesn't get down to to two percent, we're still going to cut three times yeah. next uh, next year? I, I'm not really sure which one they're saying.
2: Yeah, he did seem to be saying the latter, um, which uh, which, as Andrew said, is 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 a bit of a strange <laughs> a strange strange approach. Yeah. Um,
0: it, it's it's all. Yes.
2: I mean, up to up to, up to now, um, I've always been saying they've been very consistent for the last what two years or so since they had their initial their sudden pivot towards fighting inflation, um, and this seems uh, seems a little a little less consistent. Um,
0: is it, Andrew is is inflation under control? Do you think in in the US so that it does justify um, you know rates coming down? You know, pathetically,
3: that depends. Where is your target now? If if your target was uh, was six uh, percent inflation and it's now down to three, it's definitely uh, you know under control. If your target is two percent and and simultaneously with what else, you're telling us that you are not going to get inflation at two percent till the year twenty six. Wait a minute, mean, that's the year twenty four. That's the year twenty five, and then that's the year twenty six. In sort of kind of. Theoretically, three years time, then uh, the whole thing becomes, you know, completely such a subjective issue that uh, one should not waste uh, waste his time. You know, if I think that if I think that inflation should be six percent and it's now three, of course it is under control. If I think that inflation should be two and it's under three and it is effectively one third where it should be, then it's not under control. Then you know it. as I said, I find it—I uh, find it almost uh, a, a thing that yeah. adults shouldn't get involved. Nobody it is uh, salubriously sexy, but it is—it is, it is k- kind of a game for kids. I mean, it is—I find it childish. Yeah, but that's the way it is. We are being paid to do childish things, Peter.
0: <laughs> Has the Fed? lost control of the narrative here, because it spent um, all year pushing back against the markets, isn't it? Um, and it was pushing back against the markets very aggressively at the last meeting. Um, and we, we ended up in the situation where the, the, the markets were uh, predicting a quarter uh, 1% of, of rate cuts, and the Fed was saying none at all. But now the Fed seems to be racing to meet the markets rather than the other way around. And the mm. markets are now getting even more aggressive. They're now saying, well, actually, it's going to be uh, 1.5% next year.
2: Yeah. yes well the market yes i mean this has been this has been the pattern throughout the markets will always um will always try to you know lead the fed by the nose uh certainly what one and a half percent cuts seems wholly unridiculous, unless and perhaps that they know something we don't that the recession the recession is coming he did make some comments about saying that you know there was still a risk
0: mm-hmm. of or, recession or um, maybe deflation's um, coming
2: see. Uh, yes, and also that's a factor of the, the, the wave of deflation coming from China. Maybe it hasn't reached the, the US yet, really. Um, although we're starting to see that, you know, falling commodity prices mm-hmm. um, the, the thing, as well as...
3: The thing perhaps that we may not consider is that uh, the Fed is cutting interest rates because that's going to help uh, Biden. Actually, my, my my understanding from what... In inverted commas like a good student I have read is that Fed pre and post election behavior is completely unpredictable, meaning meaning that they don't cut interest rates as we're coming up to an election or then they feel once the election has taken place then they feel much more relieved to go ahead and increase interest rates because the election is is, is out of the way. So in other words, I would not read uh, if I was a Trumpian that the Fed is trying to 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 support good old Biden by making both the markets and the environment considerably happier as we, as we go on towards the November election.
0: Mm-hmm. There's always the possibility here, isn't there, that just like the Fed made a big mistake a couple of years ago when inflation first took off and said it was transitory and then ended up having to slam on the brakes, that it's now making another historic mistake um, and cutting rates too early and and may see inflation go and spike again, which will then uh, mean it will have to go and reverse itself perhaps.
3: Look, I don't see in the very basic macros as they stand, which unfortunately I'm not even looking forward. I was simply looking at the trend as it develops in front of my eyes and I'm not extending it. I just can't see something that suddenly is going to reverse the inflation and shoot it up from three percent which down back back to six percent or seven percent back we were in those good, bad times yeah. that the Fed had to go from when it started in March, um, I'll get this right. In March twenty-two, to hike and hike and hike and hiked again. It went from zero to five and a half percent. Yeah, I just can't see what it could be there that would make the economy go back to a seven, sorry, six percent uh, inflation rate.
0: John, is this yeah, a c- certain certainly it seems
2: it seems very. Uh, I, I agree that's that it's very unlikely um, to do, but a, a slight. Um, I mean previously though they, they would have been concerned by even a slight uptick they're now sort of saying well um you know it it it's uh, it's going to so as i say it's more a question of how determined they are to squeeze that last um percent or so out um mm-hmm. from from the inflation if we can get back to two or below two and um what they seem to be saying they're not quite so um they're not quite such a big hurry to 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 do that
0: um, mm. now the one thing that's um the- Jerome Powell didn't talk about, uh, which he did talk about a lot at the last meeting, was now this massive easing of financial conditions. At the last meeting, he was talking about how financial conditions were tightening and were doing part of the work uh, for the Fed um, and, and in effect, raising rates for them. And he said this was a good thing. Well, that, of course, the moment he said it, now went into a complete reverse. And we've had this massive easing of financial conditions. But he didn't say anything about that um, at all and that 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 could maybe um, cause them to pause um cutting rates what, what do you make of that
2: yes uh the uh, i was go- going to say that the chicago uh, financial conditions index has actually been uh, has been showing uh, you know that conditions are are loosening In fact, have been doing for several months since i think july uh, it peaked at some um, near neutral and it's been been on the slide ever since so um clearly that was the, the, and that's probably the market you know we've seen volatility in stock markets uh, fall credit spreads fall the rally in the bond markets and all the rest of it so so it seems somehow the um, the financial condition have been have been uh, loosening anyway mm. um so they're probably just saying well we'll bring the short term rate back in line with with um with that so it's, uh, it looks the inversion of the yield curve. It, you've got ten-year yields at four percent, five and a half percent short-term rates. Looks looks very high, um, but one of those two is wrong. I personally mm-hmm. think that the uh, the bond market is is way ahead of itself mm. um, for now. So maybe we'll just again come. You know, the pendulum is swinging around the around the mean, and we've just seen a big swing above above the mean or below the mean, um, and that will. Um, you know come the new after the traditional year end rally in in markets and and, and all that will by um, by January February we'll we'll see things starting to starting to go normalize again
0: Andrew, this is lit a fire under the markets, isn't it? I mean, with uh, the loosening of financial conditions, with bond yields uh, falling. uh, It was only a a month or so ago, back in October, that the 10-year yield was above 5%. I think it hit 5.02%. It's now down at 4%. Jeffrey Gundlach, uh, hedge fund manager, says it's going to hit 3%. Um, What are your thoughts on the way the bond market reacts to to this now?
3: Well, one one can play a, a similar, uh, again, s- slightly athenine game. Let's say that uh, the markets are telling you that they have a very good feeling about inflation, and that's why they don't mind seeing the yields, mind seeing the yields. In other words, they will be willing to buy into the yields coming down, precisely because the expected rate of inflation is also is going to come down. In other words, 3% uh, is, is not yet where it should be. And therefore, Powell might be wrong by expecting that uh, we're not going to see 2% for another effectively three and a half years. It might, it might happen a little, bit, a little bit faster. Yeah, but uh, put it like that. Is it unbelievably unexpected that the Fed says they're going to cut interest rates? No, because effectively the question was when they're going to cut rather than whether. Okay, so now they're going to cut earlier rather than later. So fair enough. Okay. Now, was the question whether they're going to increase again interest rates? The answer is, is much, much less. In other words, the concern of the markets was trying to guess when the Fed will ease rather than when the Fed will hike. Hmm. So we got it now out of the way. So presumably, uh, they can put us back into uh, the toy ring, throw in all our teddy bears <laughs> and allow <laughs> us
0: to
3: play in a more orderly manner. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, John, is this a green light now for, for markets, both for bonds and stocks?
2: Um, yeah, I think there's a, a, an element of seasonality also. A, a, also um, as I say, I'm sceptical about the bond market rally, um, particularly given the supply. Um, you know, we've got the huge um, huge amount of uh, borrowing to come from, from the uh, issuance to come from the Treasury, plus uh, continued um, – uh qt uh, uh, fed is going to continue to run down its balance sheet so there's a lot of supply coming out of the bonds and um, you know the brokers and and so on are uh, you know got a lot of bonds to sell so they're quite they're very keen to to uh, push the bull story on bonds um as i say i think we'll get back by you know i suppose um is it march when the first first cut might or might not take place so we'll be toying around they'll be you know we'll be toying around with at that time with um, people trying to second guess whether the fed's going to go you know this meeting or next meeting uh, and and this sort of game as andrew describes it quite 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 correctly
0: mm. and what about stocks the dow's at a record high now it, yeah. it seems almost certain the s&p and the nasdaq's yeah. going to follow them doesn't it
2: um yeah yeah no it's um yeah it's an all um it's a much broader based rally it looks like building up so i think it's got some because because the interest rate sensitive stocks are, are responding now um hence um, hence you see the dow outpacing even the nasdaq you know because that's where the the the, the um the sector rota- rotation is taking place so uh, there's there's more upside potential i'm i'm quite sure uh, uh, for for stocks over the next uh, the next couple of months, um, but there'll be a, you know, there'll be a reality check at some point, probably February. Mm. But uh, earnings- even after the, even after the first Fed rate cut, you know, which will have been discounted several times over, probably by 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 then.
0: But earnings also- have really got to come through, haven't they, Andrew, to to justify this right. these sort of levels.
2: Yeah. Peter, I was looking at my
3: uh, my Bloomberg screens here. Uh, Hong Kong hasn't opened, of course, yet, and it will be very interesting to see. Where the, the good news as far as Hong Kong interest rates are concerned is going to to wheeze through, given that we have now one of the worst performing index in the total galactic universe as we talk <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it 's down about eighteen percent the hang saying it is the worst no, no, performing no, no. market will laughing, in the
3: world but, you know, it, it's, it's, it, will, it will be nice to, it will be nice to see some good news yeah
0: well there's two competing forces here isn't there there's the um... Obviously, the good news about Fed interest rates, but at the same time, um, investors seem to be disappointed with the Economic Work Conference, um, not really enthused about what came out of that. Uh, what, what are your thoughts uh, out, out of that? I mean, there was a lot of talk, another new nine-point plan, um, but again, not a lot of details and, and not a lot of indication about how uh, consumer uh, confidence was going to be improved and, and you know how consumer spending was likely to get better.
3: Yeah, it's... Again, the thankless task of uh, uh, appearing to be doing things and also planning to be doing things. And then, of course, uh, having to deliver. And uh, I don't want to be either childish or childish. You know, I still go back two months when we had, it was either the 30 or the 31 individual points plan, okay, which uh, effectively it never, it never materialized. It came through in bits, mm-hmm. rips and drops, particularly with the sudden spurt, of uh, uh, increasing the availability of credit and also changing the conditions that credit was available uh, okay. to in uh property sector and uh, property markets. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but then as you say, taking these estates uh, further just, uh, just doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be there.
0: John, it's it. You didn't get the impression reading through the the readout of the uh, of the work conference that there was any sense of urgency. If anything, um, the, the the members were yeah. saying favorable conditions outweigh unfavorable factors in China's development. That doesn't suggest that they see very much urgency to take more aggressive steps to support the economy.
2: Yes, um, well, it's all around the property debts uh, mountain and so on. Um, you know, I think a, a, a big event coming up is whether the Evergrande, um, you know, bankruptcy trial or whatever you call it, he- hearing is 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 going to conclude. Um, yeah, we we we're clearly in a situation where we've got the, all this all this debt overhang, and that there doesn't seem to be any real appetite to um, to grasp the nettle and start doing serious restructuring and asset disposals and things like that. Um, probably because of the enormity of the of the problem you know the size it's so vast um i say if, if uh, evergreen collapses in a heap and and a lot of bad debt's going through the um through the banking system the shadow banking system and, and these trust uh, these trust things and so on uh the potential for con- contagion is quite is um is is obviously there and um so i think in the meantime it's you know they're just hoping to muddle through somehow Mm. um so we're back we're back to the japan scenario the japan in the 90s um japan. scenario potentially on that side of the economy but then we have this other this sort of apparently booming uh manufacturing sector particularly in the you know uh ev and um renewable energy uh equipment and uh, and, and so on so um um they seem to quite happy to focus on that keep that keep that all booming exports going um even though that's deflationary um but they're simply not willing and it's a seems to be a f- philosophical or issue really for the, for the party um, that they're just not willing to um go for a consumer led consumer led um, you know and uh, demand driven economy because mm. that looks that looks too much like the West,
0: Andrew. That is that seems to be the key issue, doesn't it? They don't seem mm. to want to put money into consumers' pockets um, to 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 help them. Really, they they're happy to put more investment into manufacturing, um, and and where there's already overcapacity in some areas, but not so willing to help the consumer.
3: Well, yes, because the obvious thing is is would have been something that both United States, UK, Singapore and Hong Kong done, and that is to literally send checks to people. In other words, g- give, them, give them money on which they would spend. Well, you've got 1.3 billion Chinese, and I imagine uh, even the party itself blanches at the thought of, uh, I don't want to use the word printing because it's completely irrelevant, this is simply crediting people's accounts with money rather than spending the money uh, uh, individually. Uh, Milton Friedman would have told you, the best people, the best uh, people that know where and how the money should be spent are the individual consumers. So mm-hmm. give it to them and let them get on with it. Okay. But uh, it's easier said than done, and it's not going to be done because this is not something that uh, it is part of uh, the Chinese uh, uh, armory. Uh, mm-hmm. They grudgingly accepted to increase the fiscal deficit, whereas they easily could have doubled it from 3.4% to seven percent and over. Okay, in other words, borrow a big chunk of money, or rather spend a big chunk of money. Now of course where and how they're going to be spent it, unfortunately it would have been the usual suspects. Okay, it would have been mm-hmm. trains, planes, hospitals, uh ports, and and the property sector. And also that they, mm-hmm. you know, when this was assuming this piece of paper was ever placed in front of me, mm-hmm. they would have actually said, Really? Not not likely. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> John, an interesting headline this week, the value of India's stock markets over, overtaken mm. Hong Kong. The National Stock Exchange of India uh, is now the world's yeah. seventh largest stock market, has a valuation of about just under $4 trillion. Um, yeah. Is this a significant milestone, do you think?
2: Um, it is for India. I don't think it's a big negative for Hong Kong. Um but uh you know india is is the the emerging market um and is uh, you know has a a much freer in many ways a much freer economy than china and of course it's growing you know we' we're in the eighth or ninth year of this bull market in in, in stocks um there are many consumer driven stocks and so on um which which have uh, have boomed really uh in india so um yeah, I think it's going to continue, um, and um, you know, the Hong Kong has has really its own um, its own, its own issues. I, I, I think it's
3: yeah. Peter. We're going There's to no run more out than time time. And you're not you're not going to ask us about uh, COP twenty
0: eight. I am. I'm coming on to that in a moment.
2: <laughs> Give me a moment. Sir.
3: Don't
0: worry. You
2: get it. You get. It. But uh, no, just going back to the, to the Hang Seng index, hopefully, um, yeah, if interest rates are starting to come down, that will, will give the, 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 the parts of the Hang Seng, the, the Hong Kong blue chips, interest rate sensitive banks, and, and uh, maybe even a little bit of a fillip for the, for the property market here domestically. But obviously the overhang from China, um, which are now the dominant stocks in, in the index are, is, uh, is, is another matter.
0: Okay. Well, um, Andrew, here's your chance then. COP28 <laughs> ends with a deal to transition away from fossil fuels. My question to you is this. There's been a lot of debate now um, about transitioning away from fossil fuels, which is what this deal calls for, as opposed to phasing them out. Is, is there much difference between the two? Is this semantics or is it an important difference?
3: I think it is absolutely meaningless statement because If you ask any economy whether they are transitioning into using more fossil fuels, they will be horrified because they don't. Even China, who is is actually using more coal than it was before, proportionally to the amount of energy that's being produced by electricity, vis-a-vis being produced by renewables, it's actually relatively declining. So all economies are transitioning away from fossil fuel. The difference, Peter, is they use the word fossil arg. Before that, <laughs> you could not say fossil in a core meeting. And also, I find this incredibly childish. Yes, <laughs> big news. We are now supposedly transitioning away. We have been transitioning away in different paces and places. And also to throw into that, also hopefully by year 50, we are going to have a net zero without defining. What zero means? Okay, left me absolutely nonplussed. It's great. Okay, they are working very hard at it. I liked all the little bit of details, particularly rubbishing carbon credits. Okay, because a great deal of it, they, they really need rubbishing because they are also pretty meaningless pieces of paper. So there was a lot of nice chewy bits. I'm not being ungrateful here, yeah. but the main conclusion of that <clears> is we are transitioning away from fossils, I thought, really? I didn't know that. I hadn't noticed. Thanks very much for telling me. Mm -hmm.
0: John, your final thoughts from you on on COP28, was it a a disappointment or what what are your thoughts?
2: um, I didn't have great great expectations either. Um, I think the main thing is to focus on the fact that, you know, the markets, um, um, you know, technology, economics, market, Forces are, anyway any way, accelerating um, the the transition or whatever you want to call it um, away from fossil fuels. Um, one disappointment is that they don't distinguish between fossil fuels. I mean, coal is, um, you know, horribly polluting, um, dangerous um, um, fuel, and um, you know, terrible source of air pollution as well as as well as carbon vis-a-vis natural gas which is uh, you know is re- re- relatively clean um, and a lot of a lot of economies be talking about using natural you know natural gas to fill the gap um during the transition away from fossil fuels also so so um yeah I'd like to see more more done in in, in that direction um, okay but otherwise I think we can you know we can be reasonably optimistic that the um, you know the, the fact that China and uh, and the US are both racing you know towards um, uh, all the all the technologies that needed to um, needed to achieve net, net zero um, are um, you know are well underway.
0: Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts there. Great discussion this morning. You heard there, John Schofield, who is managing director at Tempest Investments. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory.
2: Who is this money talk?
0: I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is business development director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. Good morning, Ross. Good morning from Taipei. And uh, we've been talking about the Taiwan election. Uh, recently. It's coming up very imminent now, isn't it, in, uh, in January. I've got a, a question from a listener, Bruce Simon, who has posted uh, on my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. He said, can you ask Ross Feingold what young people in Taiwan think about the prospect of a third-party candidate winning the presidential election in January? And also, what are the candidates' positions on the USA and China? So, Ross, what's your answer to that?
1: Thanks for the question. Uh, When when we talk about young voters here in Taiwan, people typically look at two age cohorts, the 20 to 29. The voting age is 20 here. Uh, So they look at the 20 to 29 cohort and the 30 to 39 cohort. From some of the polls that that do break out uh, the respondents by age, it it seems that Ko Wen-Jia of the Taiwan People's Party does pretty well with both the 20-29 and the 30, 30 to 39, but maybe a little bit better with the latter, with the 30 to 39. And the 20 to 29 group uh, did go for Tying one in the Democratic Progressive Party in, in big numbers uh, four years ago. Uh, uh, again, some of them have may, have may have shifted their support to Ko Wen But if they think uh, Ko Wen has no hope of winning uh, as we get closer to voting day, which is now 30, 30 days away, uh, it's it's possible that they'll shift their votes back to the Democratic Progressive Party and its candidate uh, William Lai. All of that's just another way of saying that the Chinese Nationalist Party or the Kuomintang. They tend not to do very well with the younger voters, whether it's 20 to 29 or 30 to 39. As for uh, China, I I think we would expect that uh, William Lai, if he wins, he's going to continue Tying Ing-wen's policies, most notably when it comes to China, that they will not agree to the 92 consensus that there's one China, but each side defines it differently on the mainland as People's Republic of China. Here on Taiwan is the Republic of China. So chances are if Lai wins, he'll continue that policy and he'll continue to look to – Really deep in relations uh, with the U.S., the way Tsai Ing-wen has done. And at times, Tsai Ing-wen and in her administrations, had some really good successes with bilateral relations with the United States, spanning both the Trump and the Biden uh, administration. If the Kuomintang wins, they'll probably look to return to the 92 consensus as the basis for cross-strait relations, uh, very similar to when Ma Ying-jeou was president from 2008, 2016. But they also say that uh, they'll continue to prioritize the relationship with the United States uh, as the most important relationship uh, in the foreign policy space. And for the Taiwan People's Party, uh, they haven't endorsed the 92 consensus, but they often talk about uh, opening up more dialogue with, with China and not being so absolutist as as the DPP is when it comes to these issues. Uh, and then they, similar to the Kuomintang, though, the Taiwan People's Party still emphasizes that the most important bilateral relationship is with the United States.
0: And do the young people see the Taiwan People's Party as being sort of genuinely in the middle somewhere between the DPP and and the KMT? Are they successfully carving out that space for themselves?
1: It's a great question. The answer, unfortunately, is going to be yes and no. Yes, in the sense that uh, they say they are. They say they're not the Dong And they're not the, the Democratic Progressive Party That they are middle of the road And that they're just very focused On finding good solutions to various issues Whether that's uh, economic issues Housing justice The cost of childcare uh, The typical economic and social issues That that uh, people will argue about In an election in any democracy uh, but, but if you ask young people To, to articulate the deep PP's policies—they're probably not going to know them, you know. Because ultimately, when it comes to issues other than the relationship with China, frankly, there's not a lot of difference among the political parties here. They're all uh, very uh, much like like a European social democratic party. They're left of center. They—they they are all in favor of uh, a nanny state. Uh, And basically, whether it's on the environment or uh, housing justice, other social issues, uh, their their policies are all very, very similar. It's not Mm -hmm. like one party is, is for smaller government or is libertarian. That's definitely not the case here.
0: And I suppose young people in Taiwan, not much difference from young people in other parts of the world in terms of what they're focusing on. They're worried about um, job prospects, slowing income growth, the fact they can't afford housing um, and, and so on. Are they similar issues for Taiwan?
1: Absolutely. And the cost of housing is really uh, probably the number one issue for for young people. And that's combined with low wages. So Taiwan's uh, you know, for many, many years has had uh, very slow growth in in, in wages, especially at, at the bottom of the scale for entry level workers, including people who young men and women who have tertiary uh, education. The, the starting salaries tend to be very, very low. And I'm referring to white collar jobs uh, in the services industry. the the salaries tend to be very very low and with the cost of housing increasing so much in recent years uh, it it just looks very difficult from the view of a young person that they'd ever be able to afford to buy a home so that's definitely been one of the key issues in this election
0: and what are the polls saying is this a close three-way race or is anyone pulling ahead
1: well, one thing that's been consistent with the polls is that William Lye of the Democratic Progressive Party has had a consistent lead throughout this campaign season. Now, his lead though is typically uh, no more than polling about 35%, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more, but generally it's been around 35%. And then the other two candidates have either polled around 30, 31, 27, somewhere like that. What's interesting though is some polls will put Cohen Judge, of the Taiwan People's Party second Some polls will put Ho Yo Of the uh, Chinese Nationalist Party As second So that's sometimes Flip-flops in different polls There was one poll From, from a relatively respected pollster Earlier this week That had uh, Ho Yo Of the Chinese Nationalist Party Or Guomindang In second place And within uh, within three, 3% three uh, Puts him in the percent of error there And uh, it, it seems that The Guomindang in my own conversations with party officials, they, they are still optimistic. They, they still think that, that the polls indicate uh, that uh, if, if Hogan can find some momentum, he could win this election.
0: Mm. Uh, there was an interesting article in the Financial Times this week about the role of Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company in this election, something that really I hadn't really thought about, so I have to confess. But nevertheless, TSMC is just so, so dominant uh, in the Taiwanese economy and on the Taiwanese stock market as well, that it's sort of sucking resources, um, this article says anyway, out of other areas um, of the economy. And that's a, a concern as well for uh, for voters. Is that something you're, that you're detecting? Is it something that it's being talked about
1: I, I wouldn't say it's being talked about by voters or on on uh, television political talk shows I mean, everyone knows the role tsMC plays in the in the Taiwan economy even if they can't articulate it in in, in dollars or, or it is percentage of, of exports that the semiconductor ecosystem represents uh, but people know it's crucially important what usually gets news here is when some foreign scholar says something like well we, we should put we should put in, uh, at TSMC's fabs, so that it could be blown up in case China invades, and there's been a few foreign experts who have suggested that in the last couple of years. So that that's something that everybody has probably heard of, and I don't and I don't think many people here agree with doing that.
0: OK, let me just switch topics for a little bit. President Xi Jinping was in Vietnam for a two-day state visit uh, this week. It's his third trip to the country since he became Communist Party General Secretary. How important is, is this relationship to China? Because it's significant, isn't it? Because the US is also uh, trying to develop uh, stronger relations with Vietnam.
1: Yeah there there's so many different angles to the to the visit and the relationship I mean, one that gets so much media attention nowadays is is the territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Where uh, Vietnam, just like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and Brunei and the Philippines and Taiwan, have territorial disputes, sovereignty disputes uh, with the People's Republic of China, and Vietnam does occupy several of the disputed islands uh, in the South China Sea, and to some extent has militarized those islands the way China has militarized some of the islands that China occupies. On on the other hand, uh, you know, we all talk about uh, French shoring or China plus one. And Vietnam has been a big beneficiary of, of that. Uh, it, it, it's build, built up uh, a lot of infrastructure, science, uh, manufacturing parks, science parks, these kinds of things to try to support some of this manufacturing that's leaving China and present itself as an alternative to, uh, you know, present itself to American companies or European companies as an alternative manufacturing location. And Vietnam has definitely had some successes in that. However, A lot of that supply chain still is chinese connected so it could be some components will come from china to vietnam or chinese companies that are part of the tech supply chain they'll open up operations in vietnam too and there's been a lot of that as well so uh, some of the suppliers especially for tech products that are chinese suppliers they look at Vietnam as a the destination they need to be in just the way uh, Western companies might. Uh, so uh, maintaining smooth re- trade relations and non- non-discrimination against Chinese companies, that's something important to the Chinese side when they're engaging with uh, Vietnam. And then the third thing I'll mention, is, and it's still relevant to some extent, is they're both communist countries and the club of communist countries is not very large. So at some level, there the, the is, I think, a, a desire to to maintain some uh, fraternal brotherhood among the dwindling number of communist countries worldwide and vietnam and china being neighbors and being communist countries and uh, some some uh, memories of better times perhaps when when china did help uh, vietnam in in the vietnam war uh, I, I think there is still a desire to have some some good relations just based on the shared political system and shared history
0: Ross, thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you as always. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei in Taiwan.
2: You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk.
0: Money Talk. And thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week when I'll be joined by Corinne Hearn, Partner and Chief Sustainability Officer at East Capital Group, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk.